Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme first and foremost today by Andrew Hayward. Andrew is the Managing Director at Russell Roof Tiles, a Burton-on-Trent based business which manufactures a range of concrete roof tiles and UPVC fittings and accessories designed for pitched roofing projects across the UK. Uh, Andrew, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Scott, and uh, morning to you. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. Likewise, it's a real pleasure having you join us as well, Andrew. So thank you indeed for uh, coming on. Um, the whole reason we are here is to discuss leadership, of course, and really bring that into focus. But considering mm-hmm. that today's business leaders are going through probably one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of COVID-19, it would be remiss yeah. of me if I didn't ask to what extent the pandemic had affected you and your business operations over the last few months. Yeah. Yeah, um, <clears throat> very apt, Scott, actually. Yeah, it's it affected the business dramatically, like, like every other business, I would suggest, um, in the world, like in the United Kingdom. I think when Prime Minister announced on 23rd of March that things were going to come to an abrupt halt, I think whilst people were planning and, and expecting things to happen, I don't think most of us expected to happen so quickly. And, and that, from our point of view, we had to take extremely fast action um, because it worried a lot of people up and down the country. We have plants uh, in Scotland as well as two in the United Kingdom in England. Um, and the the effects of that um, had quite a dramatic effect in us having to get things changing and moving very quickly in, in halting the business process and, and advising everybody within the supply chain um, that this was going to happen. Thereafter, um, like everybody else, we, we were watching closely with regards to what the kind of process would be unfolding. Um, none of us, being unprecedented, knew how long uh, and how dramatic that was going to be. However, I think it became pretty clear within the first couple of weeks that uh, this was going to be a long haul, and therefore our actions from a, from a leadership point of view, myself and particularly my financial director, supported by the rest of my management team, had to go into if you like, emergency procedure um, mindset as regards to how we were going to operate the business um, for how, however long it was closed, and then the reintroduction when we could begin to open it, not knowing, of course, um, what our market and our customers um, would look like, let alone mm. um, our, our staff, in essence. So extremely, extremely difficult. And if we think of sort of adapting to this new reality as crisis management experience. Is there anything mm. that you'd say this whole last few months managing through this crisis has taught you in a leadership capacity? Well, I think um, it, it, it really kind of, from my own personal point of view, went on from the recession of 2008-9 when none of us knew just how bad that, how bad that recession was going to be for the business. We knew it was going to be bad. Um, but in that particular time, we were faced with the loss of half of our business over a 12-month period. So in some ways, I suppose, from that experience, you develop um, techniques, thought processes, and plans that if anything was to ever happen again, not thinking it was going to be something like a pandemic, that you go into a mindset of pretty well fast actions based on um, 
for some well-trodden uh, strategic decisions uh, that we've taken previously. And hence, that's exactly what we did. So from the point of view of the leadership, as you're seeing now, I think within government and a lot of criticism around decision makers, um, leadership is absolutely critical. And, and having um, an assemblance of a plan, um, and some of it obviously you can't prove it, um, when you're doing it, but you need to be decisive when you are making those actions. And thinking of leadership in a broader sense, what would you say the role of a leader is? When I say the word leader, what does that actually mean to you? I think you, you, you certainly you become aware of the responsibility uh, that you have for everybody within uh, the severe or the organisation that you're responsible for and that people look to you for decisive actions, whatever they may be, and they need to be seen with confidence that you are portraying, um, that you actually believe in what you're doing, in, in steering um, everybody, navigating the ship through some very difficult uh, rocky waters, in, in, in essence. That became quite apparent, I think, on a team scores when you're looking in people's eyes um, and then you, you're communicating on a, on a bi-daily basis or daily basis just how much they they rely on the leaders of a business uh, to be confident in what they're doing. Mm. So often in a business hierarchy, especially, the natural reaction during a time of difficulty is to look to the business leadership and executives for inspiration and direction, rightly so, as you mm. say there. But when you are the person at the top of the tree who is running everything and there's nobody above you to refer to as such, where is it that you mm-hmm. tend to look to for inspiration when you need it? Well I, I, well, I like to think we have a very talented management team who've been with me for many years, most of them with between 15 and 30 years experience with me and in the business and in the market that we, we operate in. So in all their operational fields, they're pretty switched on, as well as obviously um, upward and open looking on what's happening in marketplaces and the economy and, and politics in general. So we have quite a collaborative approach those decisions it isn't just me saying we're going to do x y and z and um, it is being able to listen to those opinions and those thought processes to challenge both myself and overall decisions that we make and ultimately yes it's me that makes the overall decisions but it's very much a collaborative an agreement that we have across the eight of us that, that, that operates uh, the business so it's a very collaborative form of uh, leadership there, uh, for sure. Mm. And um, yeah. just because as well, this uh, whole pandemic situation has really thrust the importance of mental health and well-being in particular back into the uh, the limelight. Yes. Just honing in on that for a moment, Andrew, just how critical do you think mental health is in leadership, not just in terms of safeguarding your own, but also that of those around you as well, particularly in a time such as this? It's absolutely huge. Um, sadly, you know, Myself and one or two other people have first-hand experience um, of issues surrounding that particular subject. So whether it's personal, whether it's in the, the workplace, um, from my own point of view, it's not, it's not something yet that has enough vision, has enough support, uh, be it in NHS, be it in, in government. There's a lot of talk that goes on about it, but I think when you start to uncover um, some of the resources that are there, it's very poorly supported and, and funded for the, for all those people that sadly become affected by uh, a variety of, um, of issues in, in their lives. And COVID um, has had a massive effect, in my view, on, on many, many people, whether that's triggering things from the past or whether it is 
the pure fear of what may happen um, in the future and the isolation that that, that that creates. So trying to make sure that the people that you are responsible for and working with are in a, a safe um, environment and they, they are free to be able to discuss their concerns, their fears, their issues are paramount across uh, the business, let alone in their personal lives, because ultimately people perform best when they are happiest at home with their with their families and things are going well generally from their, their perspective. So they come to work with a smile on the face and they come motivated to do whichever job they do. But of course, these types of situations um, have, as I say, many varieties uh, that can affect people and it's important that time is taken and resources given to support people who suffer with, with, the, with this uh, sad illness. And you mentioned there as well that um, people are happiest when they're at home and they do come into work with a smile on their face, of course. Do you think that some features of this lockdown period, particularly this sort of flexibility over home working, could become a permanent part of the way that we do business in the UK? I think so. In, in certain jobs, obviously, um, where you have people that have to be at machinery, um, then that's always going to be the case. But mm. where you have positions in management, in sales, in technical positions, accounting, administration, distribution, then providing you have a laptop and you have a phone and you have accessibility to the internet and your own computer system, then many things can be done um, with with technology, in essence. And it's one of the things I personally have been discussing with our management team to say there will be a greater... Um, spread percentage of people working from home and, and having meetings via Teams calls and even meetings with customers and suppliers over Teams calls as opposed to, you know, trudging around in cars at all manner of early mornings, late nights, stuck in traffic jams, motorways, horrendous kind of things and building up stress for people that don't need to be there. So I think we've still got a ways to go yet before you, you fully know how that will manifest itself. But I certainly think that business will be done differently both internally and externally as COVID becomes um, more of a, hopefully, a more minimum risk to to all of us health-wise and and business-wise. And since it's come up once or twice in this uh, discussion already, um, the leadership coming from the uh, the government during this whole crisis, would you say that Mm. that has been more reactive as opposed to proactive in its nature? (laughs) It's, it's very difficult, Scott, to say. I mean, um, you hear much criticism um, of the government, but you would hear criticism, I think, of anybody that would be in government because it's an unprecedented situation. Um, yes, I think you can, you can say in some ways it's been reactive. The, the, the situation from following the science, which was very much the um, start of, of all this, I, I don't really concur with because I think all of us will know um, when you're dealing in a field of science, you have various scientists that have different views on different pieces of information. And in leadership, um, you will have to take what you believe uh, across your team uh, to be the most coherent policy. So for me, that was a little bit hiding behind um, other people. Uh, You're in government to lead. You're in opposition to lead. And therefore, by all means, you listen to all the experts. You take that on board and you discuss that with your team and you make a decision, you stand up and be counted for the decision, you back it up with the information that you believe, which I don't necessarily think um, the government did. And therefore, it has been a little bit slow, in, in my view, to um, to leave various situations, whether that be mass gatherings, whether that be 
mask, mask wearing, whether it be track and trace. Um, they always have seemed to be, I don't know, anywhere between two to four weeks behind pretty well everybody else within the world, even the WHO, in, in making assessments, uh, whilst at the same time looking to um, point the finger towards uh, SAGE particularly in their advice. So, yeah, a little bit frustrated, I think, where that's concerned. Certainly, um, I suppose, but you, you look at the, the start of it when um, they become decisive and, and saying they're going to make a, a lockdown situation. Mm. They gave little notice and little thought to the vast amount of businesses how we could we could do that, you know, safely for all our employees, let alone the, the supply chain. So you kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't in, in many ways. But overall... I would suggest at the moment um, they're not making the, the, the greatest job of it, but I, but I would cut them some slack in the fact mm. that it's an unprecedented situation. So there for the grace of God go us all that are in leadership positions. We were there to be shot at. Mm. And we often talk, don't we, um, in leadership about not having a blame culture and allowing people to learn mm. from their mistakes, as it were, when they do come along. But in order to embrace mm. that as a learning curve, you do have to sometimes hold your hands up and say, yes, we got this wrong and we'll learn from it, as opposed to yeah. perhaps deflecting the blame as some feel that might be the yeah. case over the last few weeks, especially. Mm. Yeah, I do. I, I totally endorse that. I think that's happened from... <laughs> governmental politicians in, in general, in, in fairness. It's not, it's not a place that the general go-to position is we'll have an inquiry afterwards and, and, and investigate. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that will happen. But unfortunately, um, I think uh, the population would rather um, have people being seen to be more genuine as we're going along, particularly when lives are at risk here and lives have been lost um, due to decisions, not maliciously by any stretch of the imagination, but... Um, decisions are taken and they, they should be taken um, with the relevant insight from, from experts that, that exist um, and hold your hands up and, and, and say, you know, what, what is that going on? People then are more um, confident and have confidence in to go along with things. And unfortunately, I think the Dominic Cummins incident particularly has had a dramatic effect, I think, through the whole population. Mm. Um, with, with what happened in, in that escapade and the fact that um, it wasn't handled anywhere near in the way it should have been handled, in, in, in my opinion. It could, could have moved on from it, um, but it was pretty poorly managed. Mm, certainly has um, had uh, its fluctuations in the uh, the attitudes of the uh, the population for sure. I think it's fair to say, um, Andrew. Our time together on the uh, the program today is unfortunately drawing to a close. But before we do wrap things up on the, today's program, um, if we think about the next twelve months in particular, we know we're going to have to continue to adjust to this new normal way of living and working. But during that period of time, what is next for you and for Russell Roof Tiles as a business, and what are you really hoping to achieve? Well, I think um, the fact that business has been stopped for, for such a long period of time and the fact that in the UK and in our industry, housing and homes um, has been one of the key features that uh, the government has wanted to address for quite a number of years. So we're in a position that, in a market that is in, in huge demand. Uh, and that, that has been seen since we've come back, actually, with um, in, incredible uh, amount of orders and reservations for housing that's been going on um, since pretty well the beginning of July. What obviously needs to continue as we go through the difficult period now where furlough situations start to end is um, the underpinning that, that jobs 
either currently that exist or the retraining of people getting into other activities um, to keep the economy and for our particular position, construction housing going strongly for a number of years to come. And we're actually already started um, capital expenditure on upgrading one of our tile plants in Scotland, actually, that feeds Scotland and north of England, because our belief is there is such a huge demand waiting to come down the supply chain that we need to be in a position to do it. So rather than, yes, we, we cut our class accordingly and then make sure that the, the costings of the business can be controlled and managed, we also have to invest in the business now while you've got an opportunity to do that, believing that the uh, demand, which is clearly there, but that the government and its various organisations um, in planning, um, in um, job creation, in training, and then ultimately in the private uh, industry with finance that is available both for the individual people to obtain mortgages and for, for building companies to have uh, the ability to obtain money uh, to support them whilst we're building ourselves out of this um, terrible situation. Mm. So I'm very confident about really how things are going to, going to go. It's just, I think, trying to get through these next 12 months uh, obviously, there's a lot of talk at the moment about um, what may or may not occur in, in the budgets, but it's a little bit early, I think, to be talking about um, making things a bit harder either for businesses or for employees. I think we've still got a ways to go yet um, before we can say we're back to um, a very solid foundation we can move away from. But certainly, the opportunities are there and certainly the demand is there. Certainly is going to be an interesting time and there are a great many variables, as uh, you rightly say, um, in that, um, Andrew, um, as well. So considering that it's still very much up in the air and given how enlightening it's been having you joining us on the uh, the programme today, it would be a real pleasure for myself in the next few months at some point to welcome you back onto the show with us just to see how things are panning out and we can then reassess just where we are at at that point. No problem, Scott. You'd be very welcome and I look forward to it. It's been a real pleasure having you joining us today, Andrew, and it would be wonderful to welcome you back on in future. Um, most importantly, however, until we do hopefully speak again, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. And yourself, Scott. Thanks very much. Cheerio. Cheerio, Andrew. Uh, we're speaking today on the programme to Andrew Hayward, Managing Director at Russell Roof Tiles. Um, next on the programme today, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst, who remains notable for being the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup, as well as scoring over 200 league goals during his professional career for clubs including West Ham United and Stoke City, among others. He will be addressing the current COVID-19 situation in his interview, as well as looking back on some of the highlights of his career and the importance of leadership throughout. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as I enjoyed speaking with Sir Jeff and he'll be joining us very shortly. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might, might last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. 
and Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm, want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans-Tilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, making, it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. the walks of life an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. 
you've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, technically good enough to, to be a rat, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he's the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. 
uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a as a, a coach of a League One club uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, who's a team coach, who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager, who manages people, may not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh, yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during Absolutely. your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? 
<laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so as you three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined, this is absolutely true, we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the streets. And uh, we were actually, but that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He played uh, lower down for Oldham Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton on the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three. When I was probably about seven or eight, into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed. And I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty, pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father. I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my my story is a friend of my father. I know the guy's name called Jock Redfern. Unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, 
there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I had one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, uh, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. And 
very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banksy was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flat. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that had uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold. Mm. Without any shadow of a doubt, he, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate. Hey, at West Ham, it was a great time at the club. 
and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close. We actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course. But I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club that I was. I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had so um, yes it, 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 the American experience was just fantastic I never saw it long term being over there that was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her Third daughter over there, so that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience, and I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that? you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always joke and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years not, not certainly um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career and I think I, I went into business for 20 years and I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up so I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years probably for those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, when you hear stories about 
this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. And ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.